Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. One of the things that we try to do regularly is uh, take those at-home COVID tests that you order. Yeah, well, recently we had a house guest who returned home with the vid. So, Cat orders a couple, and I'm opening them up, and for some reason, the instructions are only in Spanish. Yeah, it was a little surprising. They were in Spanish, but also in some other language that I could not decipher. Dutch, I think, was okay. the other. So, I'm trying to learn Spanish. Cat knows more uh, uh, Spanish than I do. You so do good. I'm trying to power my way through it to translate the descriptions in my mind or the directions in my mind how to take the this particular type of covid test mm. and finally cat said look let's just look it up because you're going to screw it up I, I didn't say that i probably would have uh, put it in the microwave for three and a half minutes and then peeled back the uh, film and stirred it and then let it sit for two minutes if you hadn't intervened but you didn't. We found a video on YouTube that said how to take this particular test. And we're like, great. OK, so the video starts in this video. It will give you step by step directions on how to take this particular covid test. Great. And then it starts. Lávase las manos o use disinfectante de manos antes de comenzar. Abra el paquete de prueba. See, this is not this is not helpful at all to us. Why start it in English? <laughs> <laughs> and then give the directions in Spanish. Oh, oh my God. Anyway, neither of us have COVID. Yeah, we're negative. I love not having COVID. I love not having COVID. I'm going to take my non-COVID having butt uh, over to this story that I wrote, and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy it as much as I did putting it together. Oh, very excited. Have you ever heard of Han Purple, H-A-N? Han. No. Purple. I don't think so. It's an artificial pigment that was created over 2,500 years ago in China. The ancient artificial pigment has some very unexpected properties that quantum physicists are trying to understand. Ooh. 
In later applications, Han purple was used in the painting of walls and pottery, but most famously, it was used originally to decorate the terracotta warriors. Remember that story we did yeah. about them? Yeah, of course. They were a form of funerary art uh, that was buried with the first emperor of China around 210 BCE. These were all relatively life-size terracotta figures, which included 8,000 soldiers, 130 chariots with 520 horses, and an additional 150 cavalry horses. Literally, an entire life-size army made out of terracotta. They weren't discovered until 1974. This is my story about the terracotta soldiers, if you want to reference it. I found it in my notes. Oh, that's very helpful. (laughs) The use of Han purple on these figures was extensive. They used a lot. They were mostly purple originally when they were first created. That I didn't know. I assumed they were terracotta colored. Well, they are now for the most part. Sure. Um, Also, I don't like purple typically, but I love a dusty mauve. I prefer volcanic wheat myself. That's not a purple, though. No, but it was the color of a sofa I bought one time. (laughs) What color is that? Um, Volcanic wheat. All the way down to an angry nutmeg. Thank you, Howard. And we know the color purple has been associated with royalty throughout the uh, generations, the centuries. That's because purple is a hard pigment to create. It's also one of my favorite movies. Han, Han Purple has been described as a, quote, technological wonder. It's the result of an extremely complex process and comprised of raw materials that were ground up in very precise amounts. Then it was heated to unbelievably hot temperatures. Okay. It was incredibly detailed and sophisticated process. In fact, we weren't able to reconstruct the process until 1992. Whoa. I know. This is when modern day chemists were able to identify its composition. Production of Han, Han Purple dates back as far as 800 BC, but it wasn't used or applied until the Terracotta Warriors were highlighted with them about 600 years after it was found to have been created. For some reason, after its discovery, it just kind of disappeared for 600 years, and then it shows up on the Terracotta Warriors. And then, soon after that, it disappeared again until its rediscovery by modern chemists in the 1990s. Wow. Now, what makes its properties so unique is that unlike natural dyes, which are comprised of organic compounds that come from plants and animals, Han Purple was a synthetic pigment, and it was made from inorganic materials. Now, the color is somewhat similar to Egyptian blue. In fact, the uh, the process of making Egyptian blue and Han purple is very similar. And that led some scientists to say that Han purple was an adaptation of Egyptian blue. Okay. And Egyptian blue is commonly referred to as the oldest known artificial pigment. Its chemical makeup is very similar. In fact, the only difference is that instead of calcium that's used in the Egyptian blue, the Chinese used barium in Han purple. And this confuses the scientists that are researching it because there was no clear reason why the Chinese would substitute barium. Because replacing the calcium with barium increases the firing temperature by more than 100 degrees and it makes the process far, far more complicated. And barium was harder to find than calcium. So it just 
doesn't make any sense. It would have been easier for them to just follow the original recipe, but they didn't. And with strange and some are saying mystical results. Among other things, it's been discovered quite recently that Han Purple has many amazing properties, including the ability to emit powerful rays of light in the near-infrared range. What? Yeah. Researchers at the British Museum conducted some experiments, and they found that when they exposed Han Purple to a simple LED flashlight, it began to emit powerful rays of light in the near-infrared range. According to the study that was published in the journal Analytical and Bioanalytical Chemistry, Han purple pigments show up with startling clarity when LED light is shined on it. So much so that even the faintest traces of the color that are invisible to the naked eye pop when viewed with infrared sensors. But the strangest thing that they've discovered, the thing that quantum physicists are scratching their heads over, is, are you ready for this? I'm ready. Han Purple appears to be able to collapse dimensions. Hmm? Quantum physicists from Los Alamos National Laboratory, from Stanford, and the Institute of Solid State Physics at the University of Tokyo have reported that the Han Purple pigment, when it's exposed to extreme cold or a high magnetic field, changes its chemical structure that causes it to enter a new state called quantum critical point in which three-dimensional materials lose a dimension. I I know. Ian Fisher, assistant professor for applied physics at Stanford, said in the Stanford report, quote, we have shown for the first time that the collective behavior in a bulk three-dimensional material can actually occur in just two dimensions. Low dimensionality is a key ingredient in many exotic theories that purport to account for various poorly understood phenomena, including (laughs) high temperature superconductivity. But until now, there were no clear examples of dimensional reduction in real materials. It was a theory, but this is the first time that they've actually seen it happen. That's, wow. Now, for those of you who are into quantum physics, This may bring to mind the double slit experiments. We've touched on this a couple of different times in the past. But for those of you who aren't familiar, the double slit experiment is a 19th century investigation into the properties of light that has since been found to demonstrate both the duality of light photons and the concept of superposition and quantum interference. Without getting too far into the weeds, basically what it shows is that a light photon can exist in two states at the same time, a wave and a particle. The wave appears to be a light photon's natural state, but only until it is observed. And once we observe it, it collapses into a particle. Go ahead and Google double slit experiment. There's lots of great videos that demonstrate how it works. And trust me, if you've not uh, investigated it, it will blow your friggin' mind. It is wild. So the Han purple pigment, instead of collapsing from a wave form to a particle, collapses from a three-dimensional object to a two-dimensional object. But I know. The theory that they're proposing is that this happens because the components of the barium copper silicate are structured in a layer of tiles so they don't neatly stack up 
in a line. Each layer is slightly out of sync with the layer below. Mm -hmm. And this frustrates the light wave and forces the object to go two-dimensional. I, I know, it's woo. Researchers say that this discovery will help understand the necessary properties of new materials, including some pretty exotic ones like high-temperature superconductors. And a high-temperature superconductor is defined as a material that behaves as a superconductor at temperatures above minus 196.2 degrees Celsius or minus 321.1 degrees Fahrenheit, which is the boiling point of liquid ni uh, nitrogen, the simplest coolant in cryogenics. And their use and applications in the modern marketplace are more than significant. Physics Today in an article talks about high-temperature superconductors being used in magnetic resonance applications, also thin-film technology in multi-chip multi modules. They're used for fast digital circuits, such as those in rapid single-flux quantum technology. Mm. They're being used in maglev trains. Mm -hmm. Those are the trains that are pushed along by magnets, right? Correct. Also, they're used in MRIs, and beam steering and focusing magnets used in particle accelerators. Which just came up in our last episode. Weird. They're used for low-loss power cables, RF and microwave filters, and a score of high-tech devices such as kinetic inductance detectors and superconducting nanoware single-photon detectors. It appears Han Purple is extremely high-tech, which is weird when you consider it was first synthesized over 2,500 years ago. Right. And we're only recently discovering how strange and exotic its magnetic behavior is. So is this just an interesting accident? Did the ancient Chinese alchemists create this substance with its strange properties by mistake? Or was it intentional and created for a specific reason? The terracotta warriors with its dimensional collapsing Han purple paint, were an entire army that was created and buried with the emperor of China to protect him in the afterlife. Is the afterlife perhaps another dimension? Did they know something that we don't know yet? Stop it. My source material, Wikipedia, Physics Today, Ancient Origins, Tech Target, and Scientific American. Well, that's really, really interesting. Isn't that And the something? way that it all came around... I mean, well done, sir. Thanks. My mind was blown several times when I was putting this together. I had to stop and vacuum up my cranial particles. And it was hard, too, because some of it rolled under the bed. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids. And they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child. And she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, 
It's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer this message is sponsored by green light you know as your kids get older there are some things about parenting that gets easier i remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece if you put your pants on i'll give you some fresca and when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right it's a lot easier to manage them Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now, that thing in the middle. The guillotine has a long and dark history, dating back many, many years. The first execution by guillotine was performed on highwayman Nicolas Jacques Pelatier on April 25, 1792. But do you know when the final execution by guillotine took place? It happened in Paris in 1977. That's right, the final use of the guillotine for execution happened when the original Star Wars was in theaters. We got a message from Marvin on Instagram. Hi, Kat and Jethro, just finished box 448. This is the one where you talked about teeth and dentures and such. And Marvin says, I thought I should point out a piece of history missing from Jethro's story where teeth were sourced for dentures. He came so close, but I think it does a disservice to the story and the history of a large group of people that were exploited and victimized in the effort to provide dentures for the wealthy. I, of course, am referring to enslaved Africans whose teeth were taken and sold to denturists of the time. Mm. This is documented in George Washington's ledgers. Now, while it was noted that in at least one account that the quote unquote Negroes were paid for their teeth, this has come under question as the particular entry was an outlier from similar transactions mm. recorded in the ledger around the purchase and sale of goods. 
Also, it seems pretty unlikely to me, but that's just a side (laughs) note. Uh, This is also sus because we now know slaves at the time were not treated as humans and exploited against their will, not just for labor, but for sovereignty of their bodies as well. Leaving out this aspect of the story is a little alienating, and I think especially in this current time of trying to erase and whitewash our unsettling history in this country overlooks the horrible treatment of a whole group of people. And of course, we wrote back immediately, oh my gosh, you're 100% right. Yeah, I mean, and to illustrate his point, all of the source material that I pulled for the Waterloo Teeth uh, story None of them reference that. And your story was about the Waterloo teeth, and then you kind of built around that. Right. So I think there, that was part of the reason for overlooking it is because you started at one spot and rather than the whole history of the dentures. I started with the Waterloo teeth and to flesh it out, I went back to some of the uh, earlier uses or, or methods of denture manufacturing And that was not included in any of it. I certainly would have included it. Thank you so much, Marvin. Got an email from a dentist. I'm just going to call him. His first name's Jordan. I'm just going to call him Dr. Jordan because I don't know if he wants us to say his name. Oh, okay. Um, He said, Cat and Jethro, how freaking amazing was Jethro's story about dentures? I'm a dentist in Idaho that started listening in 2018 when a classmate introduced me to your podcast. Years later, I'm still listening on my drive to work and in my free time. Box 543 was such a treat hearing Jethro talk about dentistry. While I was driving to my office... I didn't know many of those things about the history of dentures. We learned so many things during school, but they never taught us the history of dentistry to that effect. I can tell you that people prior to the 19th century used to think tooth decay was the result of worms getting into their teeth. Of course, that's not true. What Jethro said is 100% true about sugar. The frequency at which we consume carbohydrates, sugar, determines our likelihood of getting cavities. Bacteria eat the sugars and literally crap all over our teeth. I'd prefer that to the worms. Anywho, I adore your podcast. Always look forward to a new episode. Maybe someday, if the stars align, you'll even visit, visit Boise, Idaho for a show. Thanks so much for your dedication to our amusement, us weird people in the world. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, doctor. Rachel sent a message on Instagram. Hey, guys, I just listened to Box 447, Clams, They're Better Than People, and was super excited to hear you cover the topic. I heard JG mention wondering if scientists have done any research on using the regenerative. Yeah. Yeah. Regenerative. In my head, it works just fine. And then when I try to make (laughs) it with my mouth, it comes out all wonky. Regen. Regenerative. Regenerative. Yes, that's it. Done any research on using the regenerative. <laughs> regenerative. <clears throat> Have done any research on using the abilities of the immortal jellyfish? Actually, they have. Sort of. They're in the process of learning how exactly they regenerate the way they do. They believe that as they continue to learn more by studying their mRNA, there could be serious benefits for cancer and longevity. While I am, for one, not a fan of us being all immortal, the cancer curing part is kind of cool. Love you guys. That's fantastic. Thanks, Rachel. 
And Christopher sent us an email. I know I'm, I'm a bit late to the game on this, but I was listening through all of your podcasts from the beginning, and I was just listening to the segment about strange places people have scattered their ashes. And I wanted to share my father's wishes that he has given me. He has not passed, but wanted to make sure I knew his wishes. And he wanted to be cremated and for me to ride to the Grand Canyon on a Harley Davidson. And when I get there, to back up to the edge and dump his ashes into the tailpipe and rev his ashes across the canyon while playing Freebird by Skinnerd. <laughs> Best funeral idea yet. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. Between you and me, the curator fell asleep during that first story... Not the first time that's happened. This is The Box of Oddities. All right, I am ready for my introduction. And here's Kat. On May 28, 1934, Oliva Dion and wife Elzier live with their children on a small farm in the village of Corbet in northern Ontario, Canada. Elzier Dion went into labor two months earlier than expected, but before the doctor could arrive, a tiny baby, just three pounds, four ounces, was born. Yikes. Dr. Alan Defoe arrived and, with the help of two midwives, helped deliver another baby, smaller than the first one that was born. What? And then another. No. And another. And another. Holy crap. Elzir suspected that she was carrying twins, but she never expected quintuplets. 
No recorded quintuplets had survived infancy at this time. Until then, the only other quintuplets born died within 55 days of their birth Mm. in Portugal in 1866. So these babies were a great source of interest, not just for doctors, but for regular folk. As we've discussed, there wasn't a lot in the way of entertainment at the time (laughs) in history. Mm -hmm. Many viewed their birth as a sign of hope and strength in the face of the Great Depression. Now, Oliver supported his family uh, with a $4 a day gig as a gravel hauler. And conditions in their farmhouse were not great, especially for bebés. There was no heat, electricity, or telephones. Babies don't need telephones, but you know what I'm saying. Right. Uh, The babies were occasionally held in front of a stove to keep them warm at one point. Defoe, who was present for their births, kept nurses on the job keeping the five alive. They sterilized the farmhouse, they changed diapers, they kept them warm, rotating hot water bottles and feeding them every two hours with a dropper. Within days, the Canadian Red Cross sent nurses and an incubator to the Dion's home because these babies, as I said, were of great interest to everyone. So they were interested in helping to keep them alive, as everyone should be. Regardless of how many of them are there are. Right. The Associated Press also received word of the quintuplets and they gained international attention. Reporters and newsreel cameramen camped outside the farmhouse for a glimpse of the babies and their parents. One observer described them as scrawny, spider legged specks of half humanity. <laughs> Aww. Which, uh,. Doesn't sound great. Dr. Defoe said they looked like rats. Okay. And the papers referred to the parents, Oliva and Elzir, as some sort of like weird, oversexed Frenchies who just were so sexy timed that they just pumped out babies. <laughs> That's not how it works. No, it's not. Yvonne, Annette, Cecile, Emily, and Marie did well. They gained weight. They gained notoriety. And things got a little weird for a while there. A pair of Americans actually offered to pay thousands of dollars for the bed in which the babies were born. Maybe they thought it was like some sort of fertility (laughs) thing. I don't know. Yeah. That makes sense. One person tried to break into the farmhouse. The frenzy was labeled the quintuplet disease. Soon after the babies were born, a promoter for the Chicago World's Fair approached the quintuplet's father. They wanted the quints to be a part of this event. They offered cash and offered to pay for any medical needs. So Oliva was a little nervous about this. So he contacted a local parish priest who encouraged him to follow the money. You know, the family could really benefit from this. The babies were going to need medical assistance. So it just made a lot of sense. And the family should absolutely pursue this as long as the priest received one-seventh of the money himself. Oh, okay. The babies were, after all, a miracle from God, so they should get a cut. As the great Roy Kent once said, Fuck no! That's not really an appropriate time for that. Sorry. Okay. Oliver agreed to do just that, but when news spread of his decision, he faced tremendous backlash. Some felt that it was unfair that the Quince, the miracle babies, be taken away from Canada. They felt like the babies were theirs, and it wasn't cool. 
So when Oliver changed his mind and cited concerns about the baby's health when pulling out of the event, Mm -hmm. the family was criticized. And it was suggested that Oliver and Elzier temporarily transferred custody of the children to the Red Cross. It seems like it was kind of a damned if they do, damned if they don't situation. I think that perfectly illustrates that phrase. So the Red Cross made this offer. We'll we'll take the kids temporarily. We'll make sure that they're as taken care of as they can be. And Oliver and Elzier agreed. A special medical facility was built across the road from the farmhouse for the still fragile babies. All of them were scootled over. The public donated everything from the lumber to baby clothes. And within four months, the babies had their own private compound. Oh, my God. Which is great because they were getting the medical attention that they needed, sure. But soon after, the Dion Quintuplet Guardianship Act was passed. And at four months, it was determined that the Quints would become wards of the king. And they would remain under the care of Dr. Defoe. Excuse me? The government deemed the parents unfit to ensure the girl's survival. However, the other kids that the family already had, they're fine. They, uh-huh. can, they can stay with you. They're fine. They're yeah. old and not cute. His majesty requires the presence of the quince and ownership rights, apparently. Yeah. So the older brothers were left in the care of Elzir and Oliva. But across the road was this... Red Cross built nursery with police. It's run by nurses and newspaper organizations put thousands of dollars into the funds for access to the babies. Sure. This was their reality show craze for the time. Yes. Dion dolls were sold. The girls appeared in advertisements for soap and cleaning supplies and breakfast cereals and even typewriters. But I don't understand that because <laughs> babies can't type. Mm. Dr. Defoe's salary was paid for, as well as all the hospital employees, by the Quint Trust, which was funded by the Quint's advertisements and merch and such. Now that the girls were fully under the guardianship of the government, Defoe had free reign to experiment. Oh my God, no. His goal was to create an infant utopia and a gold standard of childhood and child care. The nurses were a rotating cast who made up a composite mother. And according to the Dion quintuplets, they were instructed not to show favoritism or affection, really. Discipline, though, was delivered absolutely. If the girls developed a habit of, like, putting their hands in their diapers while they slept, for example, their pajama arms were tied to the crib bars. It was very experimental, and it kind of feels very, like, Baby Albert-y to me. Yeah. Do you remember the Baby Albert thing? I do. I don't think we've talked about that on the podcast. Really? Maybe that... Should be something that we... That was that happened in the late 20s, right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. All I can remember is like a Santa beard. Let, uh, we'll look it up. We'll do it. We'll do it. I don't know why I said I'm so excited just then. But, but all right, here we go. So it was a lot about learning from how these children were being raised, but it was also a lot about being a tourist attraction. Mm-hmm. Quintland, as it became known, no. was the area's biggest tourist attraction. It was more popular than the Canadian side of Niagara Falls. Did they sell funnel cakes? I would hope so. Oh my God. Oh, I would love a funnel cake right now. Could have had one last night at the Cheesecake Factory. They had funnel cakes there. Oh my gosh. It's been so long since we'd been to a Cheesecake Factory. (laughs) I was not expecting to enjoy myself the way I did, but I had a really nice 
Thai lettuce wrap. Thank you. Enjoy your day. Hmm, I'm sorry I checked out. So in the morning, the girls would dress the same way for the day. They were given doses of orange juice and cod liver oil before having their hair curled to all look the same. They would then be taken to the sunroom to play on display for 30 minutes. On display, you say? Yes, there was an outdoor playground which was enclosed with one-way screens so visitors could observe the girls as they played without being seen, which is so fucking creepy. Oh my God, it's like a Twilight Zone episode. They were in a baby zoo. They were were in a baby zoo. Even during the peak of the Great Depression, more than three million visitors came to watch the girls play. They could hear, but not see the viewers. Then at 9 a.m., they had a morning inspection with a doctor. The girls were constantly tested and examined, and records and measurements were kept to monitor their development. And then there was a second and a third viewing throughout the day, where they would send the girls out for observation. And, of course, charging an admission price for those who wanted to view. No, actually, the it was free to get in to Quintland, uh-huh. but merch and souvenirs and I see. the surrounding area made money from Quintland being free. Had to exit through the gift shop. Exactly. The girls bathed every evening before dinner was served at 6 p.m. All the while, the parents were allowed very little contact with the kids despite living just across the street, and they were never allowed alone with their babies. Oh my God. The girls were taught English, even though their parents spoke French. And so, what do you do? All of us started two souvenir stands near the complex. So everyone's making money. It's a good time. Mm, I don't know. Quintland generated millions of dollars in revenue. The Dion sisters became the planet's most photographed children. They landed on the front pages of Time and Life magazines. And though visitors were told that the children were unaware and unbothered by the crowds, this was untrue. That daily the children would run to the adults exclaiming about the people viewing them. And on many occasions, they were scared. They would hide and refuse to play. Sometimes, if one of the girls became especially upset, the nurses would perform some sort of weird baby switchery where only four children would be displayed, but they'd make it seem like there were five different ones. And since they all looked the same, people wouldn't know anyway. Hmm. That's wrong on so many levels. Right? The kids were having nightmares about the fact that there were tons of people watching them all the time, but they couldn't see them. Oh, my God. In 1943... Oliver filed lawsuits against Defoe and threatened to uncover his financial stake in the quintuplet story. When the quints turned nine, their parents regained custody of their daughters. They moved into a new, very large home. And in the quintuplet's memoir, they described the situation as the saddest home we'd ever known. So they moved from this baby zoo into a home with their family, and it was worse The home was bought with money made from the girls' fame, but that was hidden from them. And instead, they were told that they were a burden. Wow. From bad to worse. Their own brothers, who had long been segregated from them, were strangers. Their parents weren't really interested in them other than the fact that they knew they could make money from them. Mm -hmm. So the girls became responsible for a majority of the household chores and meals. Trigger warning, this gets bad. Worse than... 
It already is? Yeah. Okay. Elzir was a taskmaster and chastised them when they didn't do work well enough, using slaps and insults to hammer in her disappointment in them. You know, there was more of them than their parents. They should have teamed up and beat the shit out of them. (laughs) At nine? Yeah, they were outnumbered. Sure. Those parents were. In an interview with the New York Times in 2017, Annette said, They didn't treat us like children. We were servants. It wasn't humane. All of us separated the girls at the dinner table, and for the first time, they didn't share a bedroom. He tried to break down the incredible bond that the Quints had, and eventually, the emotional and physical abuse became sexual as well. No! Oh, no. Oliver grew increasingly angry at the intrusion on their life from the outside world, at the same time exploiting them every chance that they had. They were asked to attend events. They were a source of novelty. Now, as I mentioned, during its existence, admission to Quintland was free, but the Ontario government put aside the revenue that the girls generated through advertising campaigns and the sale of souvenirs in a trust fund. But most of that trust fund was used to pay for the salaries of the nurses who cared for them at the theme park Mm -hmm. and policemen who directed traffic and other amenities like toilet paper for the three million tourists who passed through. When the girls were 18, they left the family home and all but severed ties with their family. And they attended a school in Quebec. Now, this was a struggle for them because their education in the baby zoo and then in their indentured servant home Mm. was not great. Emily took it one step further. She left school against her parents' wishes and joined a convent. But two years later, unfortunately, because of her untreated epilepsy, she went into a seizure and died. She had been experiencing regular seizures while living in the convent and had requested to be minded around the clock, but the nun who was supposed to be looking after her had fallen asleep. So when she rolled over during her seizure, she suffocated. Despite... The obvious tragedy of her death, the loss of Emily, it kind of freed the girls in a way because they were no longer quintuplets. Oh, that's interesting. And emotionally, their brand for them, that it was like a spell that was broken. Okay, yeah, I see that. Around this time, the sisters received their share of the trust, which was about $183,000 each. At the time, that would have been just a little over a million dollars. That's not too bad. I mean, certainly doesn't make up for everything they had to endure all these, all of the years. Right. Yvonne and Cecile went to nursing school. They were inspired by the composite parents that they had at the baby (laughs) zoo. Mm. Marie and Annette attended college. But in 1970, Marie died of undetermined causes at the age of 35. It was suspected that she may have chosen to end her own life by overdosing. Mm. Yvonne, Annette, and Cecile wrote an open letter in 1997 to the parents of the McCoffney septuplets born in Iowa in the United States. They wrote, we hope your children receive more respect than we did. Multiple births should not be confused with entertainment, nor should they be an opportunity to sell products. Our lives have been ruined by the exploitation we suffered at the hands of the government of Ontario, our birthplace. We were displayed as a curiosity for millions of tourists. And if this letter changes the course of events for these newborns, perhaps our lives will have served a higher purpose. 
So you can tell that the way that they were raised really negatively impacted them, and they felt like they had been stolen from. In the late 1990s, the sisters again reemerged in the media after launching a campaign for the Ontario government to hold a public inquiry into their mismanaged funds. In 1988, the province finally apologized to the surviving siblings, and they won a settlement of $4 million. Hmm. The sisters lived together at this time in a Montreal suburb until Yvonne died of cancer in 2001. Annette and Cecile Dion, the surviving sisters, are now 88 years old. As Cecile's health has gotten worse, Annette had become unable to care for her, and she moved into an assisted living facility. In 2012, Cecile's son, Bertrand, one of her four children, emptied his mother's bank account of its Quint Trust funds. So Cecile now lives on a government pension of $1,400 a month, which barely covers the fees of her senior residence, which makes me so angry. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know. Wow. I mean, that's betrayal of the highest order. Yeah. In 1965, the Quints published their autobiography called We Were Five, and a second memoir was released 30 years later. In November 1994, a two-part miniseries on the Quints aired on both CBS and CBC. And still, Cecile can barely take care of herself. Because even though they've received all this notoriety and there are only two children left, she's broke. Yeah, it sounds like everybody made good except them. Yep. Cecile says, life is difficult, but, quote, I clench my fists and I keep my head high. There's a museum in Canada called the Calendar Bay Heritage Museum, and it's got a huge collection of the Quince merch on display, which is really interesting, but also serves as kind of this weird, disappointing reminder of (laughs) this time in history. Mm. And it's just gross, basically, but still kind of interesting. I got most of my information from Britannica, Ripley's.com, the journal Courier, CBC, Montreal Gazette, Mamma Mia, and of course, Wikipedia. Well, that was depressing. And fascinating. Right. It was fascinatingly depressing. Thanks. Depressingly fascinating. Mm-hmm. Now, I had heard of the Quints before, but I had no idea the burdens that they had to bear throughout their lifetimes. It's terrible. And justice just hasn't seemed to have found them. Wow. Before we wrap this up, I just want to. <laughs> We've discussed how both of us are a little bit like social media inept sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I just discovered the hidden messages, like the private messages on Facebook. And I have like 600 private messages oh, on no. Facebook from people that I've n- not seen. Uh. And so don't do that because I will never read that. Not because <laughs> I don't care, but because it's hidden and I don't see them. And that's just it's not the best way to get in touch. But rest assured that she will feel guilty about it. Yep. I'll think about it. Like six months from now, I'll just wake up at 3 a.m. and go, you really should respond to those messages. (laughs) We've been getting some great messages uh, over on our sister podcast, The Shallow End. Great place to send messages. If you'd like to to check it out, we'll put the link for we'll put the link in the show notes uh, or you can go to the website shallowendpodcast.com all of our contact information is there thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time until then keep flying that freak flag and fly it proudly you beautiful freak and so let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands 
The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2022 All rights reserved you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.